This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon, this is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. During the 1997 Asian financial crisis, Annie Lestari left her home in Indonesia for Hong Kong to become a domestic worker, driven by the need to support her family. Sadly, she experienced labour abuse at the hands of her employers and eventually had to run away from them to escape. With the help of others, she found her way to the Asian Pacific Mission for Migrants, who offered her shelter, but who also made her aware of her basic rights and how to fight her plight. Since then, she's been at the forefront of organising and advocating for policy changes in the realm of rights of women migrant workers. She joins me now to share more. Welcome, Annie. How are you today? Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm okay and thank you for having me in this studio. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me, Annie. So, you know, I, I didn't mention you are the founder of the Association of Indonesian Migrant Workers. You're the chairperson of the International Migrants Alliance, basically an advocate for migrant uh, migrant workers' rights. But Annie, can you take me back to 1997, right? Can mm-hmm. you share that story of why you moved from your home in Indonesia to Hong Kong? Uh, why did you choose to seek employment there instead of back home? Yeah, well, I came from a poor family. My my parents believe in education so much, so they work so hard day and night so they can bring all the three children to school. So at the time when I graduated from high school, um, the crisis was already felt, like 95, 96, you know. Things is very hard for my parents and the community. Uh, they are only vendor in the market, so they keep losing money instead of earning money. Mm-hmm. So until the 1997 crash happened, then um, practically their business was really collapsed. You know, so they they hardly survive. They have to borrow money here and there, just to sustain their small uh, vendor. You know, hoping that it will recover soon. But uh, along the way, uh, with the political crisis back in Indonesia, where you know the second pre- I mean the second president was ousted, also situation was not really getting better. So that time um, when I graduated from high school, even my family told me just go back just go to uh, college you know we want you to have a proper education so you can have a, a better work but then looking back to their economic status i had no heart you know mm. i did not want to push that much because i know it will sink them to the bottom so i told them let me just find a work first locally and then if I can go back to school again, then it's okay, you know, I can always study later on, doesn't have to be now. So I start working locally, I help them with household chores, I do home industry, I try to find job here and there, but it's very difficult to survive, you know. As a high school graduate, the only thing they offer me is just either, you know, like waitress or cleaner or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not about the job for me, it's about how much I earn, because I want to help them free from the debt also. They already borrow money from the bank, they already borrow money from the loan shark so they can keep up they keep the vendor afloat you know but then they do not know how to return back the money so after a while um I told myself that it's not going to work like this. I need to find bigger money. I don't know where. And then suddenly this friend of mine um, from the school also said, oh, come on, you want to work abroad? You know, there is this a broker offer us to work in Hong Kong or Singapore or anywhere else, but not in Indonesia. So it took me one year, I remember, to just to convince my parents because they never want to let it, you know, wanted yeah. to let me go. They, they really wanted me to go to college they really believe that this crisis will be soon gone you know maybe like within one year then everything will be normal but it never been like that again i think after two years of my graduate i just told them i think we have to give up to that idea i can always go back to college but uh, it's not now Mm -hmm. it's not an urgent now and i think the important is that 
my two younger siblings can finish their school, it will be more important rather than me going to college. So I told them I go overseas. It took them a while. They never imagined, you know, the daughter, you know, like a girl, I mean, yeah. a son maybe, but not the daughter, right, to leave the, the place. So uh, finally they they let me go, but uh, in a condition you don't go to Middle East, yeah, because... We are so worried. You know, a lot of my neighbors <laughs> go to Middle East. And some of them really did not make it, you know, like that. So I told them, okay, I'll try to find a safe space. So my father told me, try to find Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong is a better... I heard, you know, Hong Kong is uh, offering a better um, benefit and so on. So I went to the agency and told them I wanted to go to Hong Kong. But the agency said, no, you are a newcomer. You cannot go to Hong Kong. You should go to Singapore or Malaysia first. Uh Unless you are already experienced, then you can go to Hong Kong. And then um, the only thing in my mind that time is because I heard Hong Kong offer holiday okay. at the off. Right. And I still wanted to take that opportunity of course. to learn, you know, to go to library or bring book or something like that. It's always that in my mind, you know, about this studying thing. So I know Singapore did not, and Malaysia at the time, you know, it was like way back in 99, 2000, it was not even an option, right? So I insisted the agency, no, I didn't want to go to either Malaysia or uh, Singapore. And then say, so, but what do you have to go to Hong Kong? You know, you are just a youngster and you work, you had no experience. I can clean the house. I cl- I've been cleaning my house the whole life. I mean, my <laughs> parents actually work. So I, I, I became the second mother of, of my mom, you know, because I have to take care of younger sibling and so on. Uh, yeah, but it's not enough. So what can you offer? So, oh, I speak English, you know, so I learn English. That's the lucky part. I learned English in my high school. It took me two years just to learn English, you know. So, okay, so that, you know, train, not train me, they test me. Can you answer this question, one, two, three, and four, and so on. So I, I answered, and they say, okay, you can go to Hong Kong. So it was kind of, I mean, like, it was so unbelievable how they test somebody whether you are capable or not capable you know and then where you can go it's not even us telling them that we want to go to this country or not it's the agency who tell us whether you deserve this country or you don't deserve this country based on your level of education experience and so on so it's later on I realized this is really a labor market you know mm. like uh, where is cheaper where is ex- more expensive you know it's not about it's a human capital. Yeah. You know, the concept of cheaper and more expensive based on certain level of requirement. So finally, I went to the agency. I stayed there for like five months. They said this is a training, but for me, it's more like imprisonment. They did not allow me to see my parents. So my parents had to travel like four hours just to see me, you know, once a month. Uh, so it's part of the training, they call it. Uh, we have to stay in the big dormitory with 100, 100. I remember I stayed with 300 women. Gosh. It's everything is in queue from toilet to food to everything because practically uh, few um, facilities with too many women. And then there are so many health issues I start having because you sleep on the floor throughout, you know. So it's like folded mattress, which is already very old, very, you know, stinky, you know, and all this unhealthy facilities but then you cannot leave because I told the agency after three months when I keep coughing and I cannot recover can you just let me go home maybe I can uh, feel better you know and there's no if you want to leave you have to pay us like I remember something like 200 US that time like 150 but it's a lot of money you know for Mm -hmm. people like us so I told my mom uh, and my mom okay don't worry I'll try to find uh, to borrow money again I said no 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 no. this is not going to be good so I told my mom give up 
Yeah, let me just stay, whatever. Then after that, I finally got my visa, my contract, and I flew to Hong Kong. I thought this is going to be beautiful dream. I don't expect that much, but at least, you know, treat me, you know, like a, a, a better also. But when I arrived, the agency took my passport, all my document, and the next day my employer picked me up. And the thing they told me is, you don't have holiday for two years. And wow. then uh, you don't get your salary for three months, you know. And then after that, you will be paid like this uh, $1,800. Later on, I, re- I just realized it was an underpayment. Mm. Because the minimum wage for all domestic helper there is around three thousand six hundred, but Hong the Indonesian yes, okay. Indonesian in general we only receive one thousand eight hundred two thousand maximum, you know. So I was so speechless. Like I thought I would have a day off, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, this is your still first two years. Uh, maybe after that you can change to a better salary and better better holiday. So none of this was told to you before no, you went, no. right? Okay. I was actually told that my salary is this much, you know. So I thought it was normal. Yeah. But they did not tell me anything about the rest day and stuff, you know. So finally, uh, the, although they say that the rest day, when I, my understanding before I came was, okay, I got this 1,800 Hong Kong dollar salary. I did not know it was illegal. Mm. Okay. So went away, yeah. uh, they say they, the agency always tell us the salary of Indonesian and Filipino are different. Okay, you don't complain. Filipinos speak English and sa sa sa. You know, I say okay, of course. What can I say? I, of course, you know, compared to Filipino, who 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 am I or who we are? You know, we are low in education and so on. So we believe to that. We do not know it was actually whether you are Filipino, Indonesian, whatever education is the same in Hong Kong. So then. Second, when it comes to holiday, they say, oh, you, your employer will inform you about that. You know, it's not like you will have or you don't have. So in my, my mind, okay, at least I will have even once a month. But when I arrived, that was the arrangement. I was so sad. But then what else, what do I have? What choice do I have? I cannot just, okay, I'm, I'm going home now. No, it's not like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I entered the job. Um, it's a family from, from China. They also migrated there. They have these two children, uh, boys, and they only have two rooms. And I have to share a bed or a room with 14-year-old boy, you know. And that time I was just like 21, you know. So it's like I don't want to think negatively, but sleeping with a boy every day. He was on top, I was on the low bed, you know. It's always giving me all this anxiety. It's very uncomfortable. Yes, and they don't give me mattress. It was just wooden bed with just practically, uh, you know, bed sheet, that's all. So it was like very painful and it's winter. It's my first ever winter. It was in December. So it's the coldest time in Hong Kong. And they did not give me clothes or jacket. So I have to use layer and layer of my own clothes and they did not allow me to use a washing machine to wash. I have to use my hand. So it took forever to dry my clothes. And then, in winter um, especially, right? Yep, yep. Especially in winter. And they don't allow me to use, for example, uh, hot water for to wash the dishes. And then they don't allow me to sit on the sofa. They have so many house regulations. I, I really kind of I feel humiliated, but I just do not know whether it is right or it is wrong. And I was not allowed to go out at all. So I knew, I knew nothing. The only time I went out was just to go to the market with my female employer and to bring the sun to the park. But even then, there's so many regulations. You cannot talk to anyone. You only watch your su- my son, blah, blah, blah. And it really happened one day. They actually inspect me. The reason why I knew, because when I returned home, they actually asked, uh, questioned me, why did you talk 
to this Pakistani lady because the Pakistani lady also brought the daughter. Oh, because your son can only play with her daughter. The rest, your son hit all the boys and girls in the park. So I have to be friend with the mother. So, yeah, but you shouldn't talk to anyone. You just watch my son, blah, 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 you know. So the, since then, it really gave me all this trauma. Like, I, what should I do? What, what is right and wrong? I do not know the limit anymore. I keep calling the agency for help. Please help me. I do not, I cannot survive this, you know. I want to change job and say, no, 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 you can't, you know. You you have to stay for two years. You already know that. It's part of the training, you know, accept that. So I complain, like, I, I'm Muslim. And they keep telling me to eat pork because that's the food they eat the most. And I told them I'm Muslim. They don't understand. So what to explain this, you know. Oh, okay. Then they, since after that complaint, my employer gave me egg every single day. In replacement. So I eat egg literally three times a day. Uh-huh. Every time I'm hungry, I eat egg. <laughs> so yeah, so, so anyhow, so after um, three months, I did not receive any salary. They say, all your money goes to agency. I told the agency, please help me to change employer. I keep crying to them. And so on. I say, no, no, you can't. You have to wait until two years. Then we can help you. Now I stay there, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so finally I give up from calling the agency. That's why... My own case, I just reflect, you know, most of the domestic workers usually call the agency for help. But mm-hmm. it's up to the agency what to advise. So most of the agency doesn't want to take any risk. They just tell us to shut up and accept. So this is the, where the abuse is coming from, right? Uh, if ever the agency do something, then at least, uh, the you know, the abuse can be avoided. So after that... Uh, Four five months, I told them I really wanted to have holiday. I don't care if you even deduct my salary. Give me a break. The, I'm going to to the point that I almost lose my mind. To the point that for me, you know, jumping from the window maybe is mar- much more pleasant rather than staying in this prison. And then it took them like another month just to decide, you know, oh, let me think about that, you know. And then finally they told me, okay, I give you once a month only, but I will cut your salary of 200. Wow. Yeah. So For I, one day. Yeah. So so I only earn 1,800. They add 200. They say, you don't have holiday, so I give you extra. So I earn 2,000 only. And then now, if you have a holiday, only once a month, I cut 200. Okay. Take it. Even you take half salary, you know. I just almost say, do it, you know, as long as I can get out <laughs> yeah. and seek help, you know. So finally, I had my holiday on the sixth month. I remember it was like uh, Idol Fitri. Mm-hmm. So I make appointment with my friend. That time there was no phone. So I keep exchanging letters. And my employer say, don't give my number to anyone. Practically, I cannot call anyone too. <laughs> so we just exchange letter and we make appointment to meet in certain time. And then finally, when I met them, we all crying. We came from the same agency. yeah. Okay. So we all crying. Like, you know, some of them have good employers. Some of them like really, really terrible employers. So I asked my friend, how should... I help myself now. Where should I seek help? No one knows. No one knows where is the embassy office. No one knows uh, what organization who sees us. You know, practically it's just a group of people crying from corner to corner. So finally, the next month holiday, my friend said, okay, I'll find an NGO who can help you. Uh, I don't know. I know you speak English. I don't know if they have Indonesian staff, but, uh, you know, let's try. So finally, they give this number of the Asia Pacific Mission for Migrants. And they told me that, oh, you know, all domestic workers in Hong Kong, nearly 300,000 their time, Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, Nepal, Sri Lanka, everyone are treated the same. You are cheated. I was so relieved, like, 
what I felt is it's, it's real. It's a yeah. proven, yeah, you know, yeah. like my rights were violated. You know why I feel so uneasy with this? Oh yeah, you can file case to the labor labor department. So finally, I ran away. That's when I ran away. Mm. And then I went there. They put me in the shelter for another four months, uh, because the problem also when you file case, um, especially many countries in Asia, they do not allow the workers to work right away. You have to settle your case unemployed mm-hmm. during that time before you move to another job. And that's the problem, you know. I was unemployed for four months, so I cannot support my family and so on and so on, you know. So this is the reason why many domestic workers really don't want to file case, mm-hmm. you know, because for them it's a life and death situation back home. So, but the four to five months being unemployed, it really gave me a lot of insight about Hong Kong. I learned about my right. I took the opportunity to be a volunteer. I handle many cases. Well, I have my own cases. So I realized we have right. But why? Why we were not informed? Why? Why no one is telling us? You know, it was really angered me a lot. So I use all my so-called free time to tell my friend, you know, this is your right, you know, and so on. And the problem that time, all the available document is in Chinese or in English. So I have to take all effort to translate. You know, uh, especially English to Bahasa. But I told my friend, you know, you know, you can file case. So since then, I became volunteer. I rescued many uh, women. I went to different government office uh, because they don't speak English. At least I speak English. I helped them to fill up so many forms. And later on, they told me, why don't you form your own organization? You know, mm-hmm. rather than what you are volunteer of NGO. No, you can form your own uh, Indonesian group. So then the Association of Indonesian of Migrant Workers was formed. So I was the chair for like 10 years and it become the how to say it's like the departure of my activism okay you know this is where i realize we can change mm-hmm. but we have to really change ourselves first yeah you have to have yeah, that, yeah. we have to change our knowledge uh, gap in understanding networking and so on from there then it you need to mobilize it well. become global yeah. yeah okay yeah. let's just go for a quick break anyway we come back let's talk about how you know this is now a global movement as well mm-hmm. right and how you're helping migrant workers all across the world i'm speaking today to Annie Lestari she's the founder of the association of indonesian migrant workers also the chairperson chairperson of the international migrants alliance basically an advocate for migrant workers rights we're talking about how she's gone from being a domestic worker to a global advocate and how she's gone from being a victim, quote unquote, to an organizer of migrants' movements. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it right here on Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. In the studio with me today, Annie Lestari. She's the founder of the Association of Indonesian Migrant Workers. She's the chairperson of the International Migrants Alliance. She's an advocate for migrant workers' rights. So Annie was a domestic worker, but she uh, suffered a lot of labour abuse, you know, at the hands of her employers. She left that uh, that abusive situation and she has gone from being a victim to a organiser of migrants' movements. Uh, before the break, Annie, you know, you shared that story of, you know, how, uh, you know, what happened to you when you became a domestic worker in Hong Kong. So, you know, once you started, um, you, you as you mentioned, you're the chairperson of the International Migrants Alliance. Before that, you were, of course, uh, you started the Association of Indonesian Migrant Workers. That was in 2000, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, talk to me about what it is that yeah, what what your organizations now are currently working on, right? How you are mobilizing, you know, what are some of the, the work that you guys carry out? Yeah. So uh, let me just reflect how I became a global activist. It was really start with Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a home for 
like uh, different nationalities. So in Hong Kong, we have this network of domestic worker coming from different countries. We call it the ASEAN Migrants Coordinating Body, which is very, very active uh, locally, but also regionally. So I became their uh, coordinator. I represent the domestic worker issue regionally. Mm-hmm. I became active, um, you know, to advocate on the right of domestic workers, including the Convention on Domestic Worker C-189, with, uh, adopted by ILO in 2011. And then since then, um, the, inter- the International Migrants Alliance, or IMA, was formed in 2008. The story behind was when I became regional activist, I, you know, like many of us, not only myself, noticed whenever there is a discussion or um, conference or maybe... Um, dialogue with the government in relation to migration, it's not really the migrants who are sitting there. Mm. It's either uh, NGOs with uh, knowledge or uh, expertise or academe or a public figure, you know. But you don't see much uh, migrant workers. I attended many conferences. And what really made me feel very, very sad is that those uh, migrant workers who were invited into the conferences are only a testimony. Okay. No one actually asks, what do you think about this issue and what do you want mm. this to change? So the only thing uh, taken from us is our stories, our realities. But then when it comes to how it can be uh, reform, improve or, you know, like change, they put different international knowledge into that to the point that sometimes I don't understand what they are talking about because they talk different convention, they talk about uh, ILO, United Nations, and so on, which is something for us like we know that, but we do not know what does it mean. Mm. But at the end of the day, what I see, I don't feel any changes on the ground. It is us who are actively organizing, educating, fighting for this and that that we get something out you know, from the government. Otherwise, nothing changed. No matter how, you know, we talk about global convention, regional convention, it doesn't reflect on the ground. So this is one thing that I was very, very critical, you know. And then for me, I was very, very critical to the point that I was so, you know, um, mad, that frustrated actually, that why you always assume we do not know what we want. Who are you telling us that our problem can only be solved by this all convention, international engagement? Every single day, we battle with cases. People run away. People being abused. Document being confiscated. Who will address all this problem? The convention. You are not even on the ground doing all this work. Every day, new people are coming. They are also exploited. Who will handle their cases? You know, how many NGOs are really doing all those so-called dirty work on the ground? So I, I became very, very critical uh, with many of my fellows. You know, we saw that, no, no one can really speak about these issues until we ourselves go to the front line and say, hey, this is our problem. And then uh, this is our demands, you know. And I think partly when we try to analyze, uh, there is really hesitation that time because many of them are well-funded. Okay. It's a donor issues, mandate issues, maybe institution-wise. You cannot say this and that, you know. And a lot of the labor issues is only seen from the labor issues, like about right, holiday, salary. But many countries have a lot of problem with immigration. No one talk about that. Mm. Many countries are being, they are overstaying because the policies are so repressive. Many countries, all migrants are paying so much money 
to the broker. No one is talking about that. And some people are even being criminalized, arrested unfairly, and no one is talking about that. So, I mean, in, in Malaysia, for example, doc, Dr. Irene Fernandez from Ternaganita was very passionate, you know, all these issues and so on. And she was even, you know, shoot that time. And who fight for her? You know, something like that. So we see that the bigger picture of my labor migration is not even being exposed. And I think this is what we think. This is the reason why the policies are so are so big in the gap, mm-hmm. you know, between what you talk about in the convention and what is in the reality on the ground. So, so then from then we see, okay, if we are going to speak for ourselves, so how are we going to do that? We don't have money. We don't have access. Who we are, you know, and then we are scattered everywhere, you know, even within one country, you cannot easily connect, right? Because yeah. of this immobility, you know, by the company, by employers, by policies and so on, you know, all the more among countries and region. So that's why we think developing a global grassroots-led movement alliance will be very key to that, to bridge all this. Maybe not everyone can travel, but at least different issues can be put together into what we call it a unified uh, plan of action, right? Mm-hmm. So this is where the International Migrant Alliance became very, very important. Uh, we we launched this in Hong Kong, and then since then, our motto is, uh, for, for a long time, others already speak on our behalf. Now we have to speak for ourselves. So we bring that everywhere. We became very active in different forums. Like, I remember I became active in the United Nations out of blue, <laughs> and then we have to go to different universities, conferences, and so on, and so on, and so on, until I was elected to speak in the opening of uh, United Nations General Assembly Summit on the movement of migrants and refugees. So it was like a milestone to even reach to that point, you know, but then... Of, you know, reflecting from that experience, very good experience, because I think now uh, that little move uh, gave people confidence they can do something. But there is really um, a big uh, process. It's a long process that we have to be willing to undergo. I think that kind of um, the reason why IMA is very important, uh, and that's the reason why we are in Malaysia, mm-hmm. is to to learn, you know, what are the issues of different migrants, refugee community here. And I believe the issues are quite similar. Maybe it has its own local contact, you know. But then the question is how to bring all those messages up there regionally, internationally. Tanaganita has done the best they can within local level, but then migration is cross-border issue. It's a regional, it's international design. Mm-hmm. You cannot address migration from very, very local perspective only. So we have to be active at all layer. Yeah. yeah, and we speak about something. I know you've spoken about this, right? It's called development justice, right? Yes. So how you know we you've spoken about how debt exploitation, the denial, right, of basic human rights. These are all the realities of a system that promotes mm-hmm. export and exploitation oh. of migrant labor, mm-hmm. right? So you wrote about how we, I guess, what we must do, right? Maybe you want to elaborate on that. Yeah. So uh, development justice as a concept where. Um, this is developed by a woman network. It's called Asia Pacific Forum on Women Law and Development or APWLD. So many years back, I remember when we were uh, advocating uh, the voices from the South, which is, you know, from Asia Pacific, uh, in the Millennium Development Goals with yeah. the UN, right? It was, um, it ends in 2015 and then it now continue with Millennium MDG, SDG, sorry, SDG, Sustainable Development Goals. That time we were actually struggling, like, 
if this is just a name, it's a beautiful name. MDG to SDG. But then what does it mean? Correct. Why it doesn't reduce poverty in 2015? Why all those targets they declare by the United Nations doesn't even felt by the people on the ground? The number of people who are forced to leave their home countries increase every single day, every single year. And this is actually a declaration that development in that country is a questionable You know, so but then if we want to critique that, what should we bring in? So this is the development justice came in mm-hmm. because it talks about the concept of if the government want to prove they really serve the community to a better one, they should fulfill at least five type of category. Economic justice mean equality in terms of salary, you know, uh, compensation, uh, livelihood of people um, uh, and economic justice. So. Uh, uh, Accountability. Uh, I forgot there are five, and including uh, climate justice. So that means the you know accountable to the people, but also to the environment, right? Yeah. So because that will create a condition where people don't have to live. So this is why we also became very passionate uh, with the development justice because this is the solution to force migration. Mm-hmm. If only our salary that we earn in Malaysia or other countries, uh, we can earn back home or enough back home, why should we even travel all the way, being victim of human trafficking and exploitation for the sake of what? You know, we have to be separated from families, children. They grew up without mothers, without fathers. No one even want to do that. But then if you're earning there, it's only enough for 10 days and you have to live for 30 days. And your children have to go to school, you know, otherwise there will be a cast in the society. Then what choices do you have as a mom, as a father, you know? So this is the condition that we think development justice will be a platform where we tell the government, do this. Then you solve other problem, at least you minimize. But then since then it become our advocacy tool to different, uh, uh, how to say, uh, government and even United Nations. But then we know this is not easy. Because we are facing um, government who are more oriented to profit mm-hmm. rather than welfare, right? Yeah, yeah. They are more into, okay, investment rather than employment. Okay, of course, there is employment. Yeah, employment within investment, mm-hmm. right? How many people can you put into the employed within the investment out compared to people who cannot be employed? And then how long will they stay in that country? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, but after that, they leave our society with destruction. So this is the kind of thing that we want to question them. So that's why we are actually uh, joining the women from Asia Pacific. I mean, all people from Asia Pacific to promote this development justice. But again, this is long-term battle. Uh, what we are now fighting for within IMA is what we call it short-term uh, call. You know, like regularization for those who actually lose uh become undocumented in the process of migration. Okay. Uh, right to the victim of human trafficking to stay, to work, you know, rather than send them back home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They say this is protection, but actually you just send them back home, right? And then also wage increase to the point of living wage because many countries in Asia do not even give sufficient salary to their local workers, also to the migrant workers. Our earning is even half, sometimes only one third of the local salary but we we eat we breathe the same air and we eat the same food and you're doing so much of labor and I mean, doing so much are. more than anyone right yeah. so this kind of inequalities the thing that we want to how to say a uh, nero mm. you know yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 
Okay. And the, did you feel, you know, when you were in Hong Kong as well, right, did you feel that your home country had done enough to ensure your safety and well-being as a migrant worker? No. Actually, many of the countries, even Indonesia, we, we, you know, within Asia, we can see who are, the, who are sending migrants. We see Philippines is number one. We see uh, Indonesia, Bangladesh, right? India and so Nepal, for example, they are the one exporting um, migrants, you know. But have they done enough? Even Indonesia, have they done enough? No. Because in my own case, that's what I say. My case is a case. It's, a sto- it's, a, it's evident that I was not well informed. Yeah. I was not well equipped, you know, uh, to work overseas by my own government. And yet, in the other side of that, they earn money. That's why I lost three months of my salary because there are so many lists of fees I did not know I have to pay. And it was collected by my own government, the Indonesian government. So I think, but yet in return, whenever we ask help, even the embassy, when I, I remember I ran away, I went to the agency to collect my passport. They actually put me in the room and they scold me. They almost, you know, hit me, you know, lucky somebody came and it stopped. But then, They'd say, I'm not going to give your passport. You have to go back to Indonesia. You already run away. You already damaged. Blah. You know, they, 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 they call me. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, they say, I already find you a job. You cannot thank me enough. Now you do this to me and so on and so on. And finally, my friend called the police. That's when they stop. And then they suddenly play very, very sweet and say, oh, don't worry. I'm just talking to my kid. You know, they called their client kid. I'm just talking to my kid, you know, Gosh, and... So many and levels of gaslighting happening. Precisely. And then, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to give back the passport. The passport is not that us, it's with the Indonesian consulate. I said, like, you already told me you I'm not going to give my passport, and now you are changing your, you know, just like flip, you know. So that's when I realized how evil they are. And then the next day when I went to the embassy, the consulate, to pick up my passport, I also get another scolding. They blame me for being for running away, causing their problem, and so on and so on. So, I mean, like, I'm already in the desperate situation. Instead of asking me what happened to you, you know, uh, where are you staying now? Uh, are you can, okay? Are you okay, you know? <laughs> and so on. This is the kind of attitude. That's, that's the reason why I understand why most of the migrant workers really don't want to go to the embassies. You know, unless you find a good, nice uh, staff who really want to assist you, then the rest, like, forget it. In the end of the day, I'm overseas alone. I have to fight for my life alone. And you are you are nowhere, mm. you know, to be found. So, But rather than getting scolded and get nothing, then I just have to survive in the, you know, in the jungle, I can say. So that's what, you know, that kind of attitude. And along the way, they also close their eyes when they know Indonesian in Hong Kong were underpaid. They, the Indonesian did not have their passport in hand. They just close their eyes. You know, no matter how many protests we, te- you know, how many protests we do, we give them petition, we give them uh, the result of our research and so on. They just... You know, so it really takes a lot of effort to change the situation. But learning from my own experience, once the, the migrants become very critical, organized, and of course we do a lot of um, pu- public protests according to the existing law, right? If you can't, then you have to do a lot of letter petition, you know, like online campaign and so on. So and still okay, right? Yeah. Then uh, otherwise changes is not there. So that's why we say to our NGO friends, you know, I know you mean very well, but it's not enough to change the situation. Otherwise, uh, you know, policies will, bad policies still be there. Cases is there all the time. (laughs) 
until the day we die, maybe the case is still like that, you know. But then it requires uh, people, the victim, to go to the front Just and be critical yeah. and change. Otherwise, you know, that's why we say this fight is our fight. You, you need a seat at the negotiation yes. table, right? And that's not been afforded to you all this while. Correct, yeah. So that's why uh, we really thank a lot of the NGOs, you know, like the IPMM, the Asia Pacific Mission for Migrant, IPWL, who created all this platform. I can go to UN because of them. Mm. Otherwise, how can I fill all this form with ECOSOC status and all this detail number and so on and so on? Like, how will I risk, like... How many? 3,000 US dollars just to fly there, get a hotel and so on? I can't. So without this kind of support, it's impossible. That's why I see the partnership is very, very important. But again, let the migrants, refugee be the one changing their life. So that kind of long-term projection is what IMA is trying to promote. Okay. And you you did mention, you know, you, I mean, obviously you're here in Malaysia, you're here for a series of meetings, and I guess, you know, you're also building roadmaps of, you know, how to how to move forward. Yes. Am I correct? Yes, correct. So, uh, during COVID-19, uh, we were actually really cut off <laughs> from different uh, international connections and so on. Of course, we connect, in, you know, uh, online, but, you know, it's not enough to know what is happening on the ground. So, now that 2000, since last year, we were able to meet in person again. We conduct a global assembly for IMA. It was well attended uh, by 160 people coming from all region. And we finally understand what is the trend post-COVID. Mm. What we want to see is what is during COVID and what is post-COVID. And both set is very different with before COVID. Okay. A lot of repression on the ground. A lot of government cut their labor importation. So if they used to employ like thousand thousand of people, now they say no, I'm not going to employ that number, maybe hundreds something, and then this type of skill and so on. So there are a lot of uh, labor migration continue, but now due to the crisis, a lot of home, you know, like uh, host countries in in Europe, in US, even in Asia, they do not promote uh, massive migration. Okay. They are highly selecting who can be recruited. They impose more. <laughs> A restriction in terms of policies, like you can stay only this year, you can only be this kind of job, and so on and so on. Your sal- a lot of, sal- I mean, most salaries are really stagnant. Migrant worker salary is just there. Okay. Before COVID, during COVID, and now that. And it become a big issue because inflation is going up. And every single year, at least once to three times, inflation is increased. But yet our salary is just there. So you can say you are underpaid. In Hong Kong, for example, the salary of domestic worker is 27% deficit compared to what you need to live as a one single person in Hong Kong. That's the reason why a lot of them are trapped into debt. They can't send enough money anymore just for the education. And, and all monies that they send, you know, people believe that they, we become rich being a migrant. No, we did uh, research on remittances between Filipino Indonesian with the uh, Alberta University of Canada and Hong Kong University and we found out surprisingly most of the monies of the migrants goes to food food okay. and other so-called basic living expenses education and stuff so their original dream to migrate which is to have a house or saving or a business actually come to the last they can only save in our survey 6 to 7% monthly <laughs> to materialize their dream. So it takes them forever, you know, even to get that dream. That's why many of them stay very long years overseas, like 20 years, 25 years, sometimes their whole life until they, you know, 
become old age and they just go home. And the only thing they can do is just enjoy their whatever they put, you know, through the migration, you know, housing or so on. So, so this is the kind of reality. So the labor migration today, I can say, is very cruel. Yeah. It's very unfair. It's very deceiving. It's really manipulative, I can say, in the process. It's very dehumanizing. You know, it takes away our youth, our dream, and our right to be a normal person <laughs> and to materialize uh, our dream. You know, no one can become teacher anymore, nurses or whatever, because you have to work your whole life just for the sake of having so-called a house Basic or needs. bring your children to college. That's all. Mm-hmm. And especially for women, practically, you think you migrate only for four years because you were single. But once you have another children, when a children are married and having children, you migrate again. And that's all. Then you will stay until your children graduate from university or after they get married. And you are still overseas. So that's, that's the thing with women. It's become a double, triple sacrifices. Yeah. So, I mean, we're just um, running out of time, Annie. But, you know, I guess, you know, moving forward, of course, you are, of course, trying to, it's a very broken system, right? Mm. I mean, I think we can agree on that. So, I mean, what are some of the things in the pipe? What are some of the plans in the pipeline for the International Migrants mm. Alliance? Uh, and also, I guess, you know, any message that you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah. So, uh, what do we want to do now is really to, again, uh, put our major call that we can promote globally, regionally and locally. For example, the major issues we are really fighting for is about living wage. Mm-hmm. We Government must increase wages and other financial benefits. During COVID-19, we are practically excluded from any so-called cash, any kind of relief program. So now they have to include us. So living wage, inclusion into the benefit, you know, uh, COVID and post-COVID. And also we want regularization for those who are undocumented. Like if you can regularize them, why should you import new people, right? This is people who already know your countries. Mm-hmm. They are potential to your economy. Why should you actually recruit new one? And they are exploited again in the process, you know, something like that. And then another one is also to, to make sure that the working condition is really being evaluated and improved, you know, from right to day off, food, and uh, what? Sleeping arrangement and mm-hmm. so on, you know. Because sufficient rest. Sufficient rest, you know. Now what we are promoting is actually uh, working hours. If not working hours, then at least resting hours. Because it's not in the contract. Okay? Mm-hmm. When it comes to domestic worker, we became very, very vulnerable. Most of the domestic workers work already 12 to 16 hours before COVID. During COVID, they work up to 20 hours a day. And now it become really a major issues among women, yeah. Because when you have men says you need rest, but they can't, right? So we are now promoting globally, regionally, in terms of the United Nations, and adalah regulate, regulate resting hours, working hours. If not, then resting hours. Declare how long can we rest. So it not become like play hide and seek between emplo- you know, employer and employee. We cannot negotiate. You cannot say no when you are asked to cook 3 a.m. in the morning, right? So that's the major, major call. And of course, we are asking government to support accommodation if we lose the job. To provide us with financial assistance if we have to leave the country, right? We call actually our government, Indonesia and another government, please give us subsidy when, while we are unemployed. 
we are all economic hero, you say. I mean, the government say. But when we lose the job, you give us nothing. Only Philippines actually give 200 US subsidy for those who are COVID-infected and repatriated. But the rest of the countries, nothing. Not even an air ticket. So this is the kind of crucial. And now with COVID, post-COVID, we do not know whether the kind of outbreak will happen again, right? So if the the if the government are not prepared and do not help, then what they do, they actually promoting more undocumented. They are promoting people to stay off, to overstay, and they are promoting another system of smuggling and human trafficking. Because what else they can do? Yeah. They cannot just go home. But in the long run, we are really uh, joining other, you know, movement, women, youth, and a farmer, and so on, to really promote the development justice. Because without that, it will be our story, our throughout our life, not us only, our children, our grandchildren. And I think we don't want that to repeat again and again. I don't want my younger sibling to be migrant. All the more my children, you know, and I, and. That can only be done if this development justice principle is being applied. So that's where, and also strengthening the movement. Again, we are being scattered everywhere. That's why uh, the officer of IMA are traveling around the world to meet different uh, community, to get what they want, and then they, to manif- to translate that into, you know, call to action to the government. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if anyone's listening and they'd like to find out more about the uh, IME's work, uh, IMW's work, uh, what's the best way that they can do that? So, we have a website, uh, International Migrant Alliance, and also uh, we have Facebook also. It's called International Migrant Alliance. So, we are connected there. If you need to know about our work uh, and also how you can seek help, you know, usually many group contacted us for assistance. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I have a, a, my family somewhere else. So, you can contact us. So the website is uh, www.wearemigrants.net. So okay. all information is there. Okay. We are trying to have different languages for okay. that. Yeah. All right. And I'm sure you know you uh, you are also looking for I guess volunteers or anyone yes. who can support. Everyone can help us. We have a lot of uh, volunteers which is different part of the world. They are helping us with media. They are helping us with some like compilation of uh, information. They are helping us with translation yeah. and interpretation. Any help, whatever capacity you can, uh, whatever language you want to, it's okay. Okay, and you can do this work remotely, right? Remotely, you, can, so you from don't have to meet us. Yeah, we usually make an online meeting all the time. <laughs> okay, right. yeah. okay. So that uh, so that website again for the uh, for the International Migrants Alliance is wearemigrants.net. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I was speaking to Annie Lestari, founder of the Association of Indonesian Migrant Workers and chairperson of the International Migrants Alliance. We were talking about um, how she is working along with others, of course, to advocate for migrants' workers' rights. If you miss any part of our conversation today you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash learn. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.